0: The book of Revelation is the last book in a series of 65 books. The Bible is composed of 66 books. To really understand and appreciate sort of the magnitude on a historical global level, you really need to read the first 65. And we don't have time for that here, um, but what we will do is give a brief synopsis so you can understand what has been called the redemptive story throughout all of this history of the world. Uh, if Revelation is the end of all things, and it is, it's that book on that side of the bookshelf. Uh, it's important to understand the beginning of all things. And the first book on the other side of the bookshelf is Genesis. Everything began with God, who himself had no beginning. Genesis 1.1 says that God, that God made the world and everything in it, including you, humanity, Even the serpent that appears only a few chapters later in Genesis 3. And this is not just one of many variations of an origin story. This is the first worldview answer to the question, how did we get here? We got here because we have a creator God who spoke things into existence out of nothing. Genesis 127 says that God then gave to humans who... Were the pinnacle of his creation, and the word is going to come back to us later in connection with Christ, that he gave to Adam and Eve dominion over all the other creation on the world. God looked around several times in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and he said this repeatedly It is good. It is good, and it is good. In chapter 2, even with all the good and the beauty and the endless delights, that God had placed in the Garden of Eden, there was a single prohibition. One thing that God said, you can't do this. He highlighted it. He made it very clear. He tethered warnings to it. And He said that of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. It is not unkind for Him to put that tree there. He put it next to another tree. The tree of life. This was a reminder to Adam and Eve who were created beings that they had a God and a king and that they were not gods or the kings of their life. In chapter three, we're only three chapters in to this incredible story. A serpent, seemingly out of nowhere, starts to provoke doubts In Eve's mind, doubts about God's character, about His goodness, about His trustworthiness, and about His care. He said, did God actually say? And Adam and Eve break their Creator's single command. And their relationship with God changes from one of friendship and fellowship and love to enmity and separation and distrust. And that answers the second worldview question. What went wrong with the world? What is the problem? In chapter three of Genesis, verse 14, we will see that folded into the curse. And that's what happened when Adam and Eve took of the fruit. There was a curse pronounced primarily initially to the serpent himself, who is clearly more than a snake. The book of Revelation will let you know that he's more than a snake. Tethered to that or folded into that curse was a promise that there would come a day that there would be a man child, human, born of a woman who would crush the serpent's head. That answers the third worldview question, what will it take to fix what's wrong with the world? Matter of fact, he says this, he will bruise your head. It's a soft term for a head blow or a head crushing or a lethal hit. In chapter 12 of Genesis, God narrows the focus of his previous promise of the head crusher, the Messiah, the rescuer, the deliverer down to a family or if you would later in Exodus, a nation. And he chose Abraham to accomplish his purposes. So through Abraham would come this Messiah, this anointed rescuer, deliverer. And not only to bless the Jewish people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, but he said to bless all the families of the earth. Fast forward to Psalm 2. A totally different genre in the Scriptures. And Psalm 2 displays the purposes of God for human history. Everything from Genesis all the way to the end of Malachi, and then you have this, this sort of uh, intertestamental period where there's this land bridge that is, is met by Luke's gospel. But Psalm 2 says this, the nations rage. Kings posture themselves against God, and it's an interesting term. They posture themselves against God and His anointed, which is the Hebrew word for Messiah which means a rescuer-deliverer. And the nations and the powerful leaders are posturing themselves against God and a Messiah. It's interesting. We're not familiar with this picture, but in Psalm 2, verse 6, God in heaven, you know what His response is? He laughs. And the reason He's laughing is not in mockery or scorning, but He's laughing at the futile, empty attempts For these kings of the nations who think they're powerful to stand against him and his Messiah. And he says this, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So this Messiah, this anointed one is a king. Here is what God says of this king in Psalm two, verse seven to nine. The Lord said to me, you are my son. So the king is a son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage. Do you remember what the serpent, remember what the devil in the wilderness to Jesus promised? If you would just bow down and worship him? If you bow down and worship me, I will give you what? I will give you all the nations. A promise the Father had already given to the Son. Here's the trick. Here's the deception. Satan, the serpent, offered them to Jesus If you simply bow down and worship, and he could escape, if you would, dying for the nations. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That language will appear again in Revelation chapters 5 and 9. It's all pointing to the culmination and the reclamation of this earth by a king. In Psalm 10, or Psalm 2, verses 10. God then provides counsel to the kings of the earth. We don't typically think of psalms this way. But Psalm 2 says this. Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Then he uses this image almost of someone bowing down and kissing the ring on the finger of royalty. He says this. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss The son. The king is the son of God. If we fast forward to Daniel chapter 7, this is one of the books called a major prophet. Major because it's a longer book, not because they're more important. But after recounting a succession of world empires, four to be exact, he includes a fourth terrible beast. Different beasts represent different human empires. The fourth terrible beast with ten horns, Rome. And Daniel sees a vision in the midst of all these kingdoms, even in the midst of a future Roman civilization. He sees a vision of God the Father, the Ancient of Days. You're going to hear this language again in about five minutes in Revelation. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, this is what Daniel saw. And by the way, Daniel, a godly man, after he sees this vision, grows pale and he is sick for days. He says, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. Something human, but not exactly. By the way, that was the favorite title that Jesus would use for Himself because it identified Him with us, with humanity. And He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him and to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. See, this Son is a king that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion, and this is the difference, is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And I believe God has tucked within every person's heart a desire for that kind of place. One that cannot be tainted and ruined by sin, or relational disconnects, or hurts, or suffering. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, during the time of the historical books, prophets would speak and prophets foretold these details about the birth of Jesus Christ. Isaiah prophesied in chapter, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. He said this, the Lord himself will give you the sign. The sign is something conspicuous. It stands out. You're not supposed to miss it. So it has to be unusual. Well, what is the sign that the Lord will give? Isaiah says, look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And all of a sudden the promise, really the first gospel of Genesis 3.15, is starting to be filled in for us by identifying who this son, king, messiah would be. Micah prophesied in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He actually doesn't just say it'll be a virgin, but it'll be a virgin not in mighty Jerusalem, but this small hamlet five miles outside of kingly Jerusalem where they would raise sheep for the sacrifices in Jerusalem. And Micah would say this, But you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Fast forward to the Gospel of Matthew. This passage has already been read twice this morning. Later on in Matthew 1, 21 to 23. But Matthew 1, 1 announces the arrival of a king. We don't, we don't give much credence to genealogies. I think it's, the interest is, is being picked up again. There's a reason Matthew gives a genealogy, and he doesn't go all the way back to Adam. Luke does, because Luke is trying to present Jesus as a perfect man. If you're going to present Jesus as a perfect man, you go back to the only other, at one point, perfect man. But what Matthew is doing is presenting a king. And in order for him to be a rightful king in Jerusalem, in Zion, he has to be connected both to Abraham, Jewish, and David, Jewish royalty. Listen to what Matthew says. Very first verse. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's then called the Christ there. Christ is not a last name. Christ means anointed. It means Messiah. It is the Old Testament, the Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah. Same thing of Psalm 2. I have Put my anointed one forward. His miraculous birth from a virgin as the seed of a woman is God's proof that he took the initiative. Do you know that? We could not have produced our own hero. There have been many heroes throughout the history of humanity, but we could never produce a hero that could save from sin and conquer death. Every hero we have produced died. Died except for one that we didn't fully produce because God had to take the initiative. And Matthew says this, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he quotes Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That is because he's going to give the interpretation, this son, this male child, that is going to destroy death, means God with us. And that's one of the most important truths we need to understand this morning, and that is this. This baby was born to destroy something. We don't typically think about Christmas like that. The oath He swore to the serpent that a male child would be born and deliver a head-crushing to you is fulfilled in Mary's baby. Matter of fact, John in 1 John 3.8 eight says this, The reason the Son of God appeared, the reason He was born, was to destroy the works of the devil. That old serpent found all the way back in Genesis 3. But this baby was also born to save something. He destroys one thing, but He's saving something else. And that is exactly what Matthew said. She will bear a son and you shall call His name Jesus. Why? For He will save His people from their sins. The Apostle Paul would say this in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? Sinners. And there's hope for you if you believe and accept the truth of God that you are a sinner. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Sometime after Jesus... Death. Of course, John introduces this term, the Lamb of God, indicating by what kind of life and death he would die, a sacrificial death. John finds himself exiled to the salt mines of the Mediterranean island of Patmos. You've turned to Revelation. Look at Revelation 1, verse 9. You will see that John is now a prisoner on this salt mine island. There he receives a series of visions from the risen Jesus. Jesus has already died. And just as he said, three days later, rose again. Forty days later, ascended to the Father who sits at his right hand, waiting for his enemies to become his footstool. He gives a series of visions to John. This is the book of Revelation. What the last book of the Bible then does is it shows you the certain triumph of the promise of Genesis 3, verse 15. It shows you the certain triumph of Christ. And his coming kingdom. And I want to close this morning by showing to you how John saw Jesus. Now remember, John would have heard the stories of his birth. John walked with Jesus. John saw miracles, but John was not expecting to see what he saw. Jesus is no longer in a manger. He's no longer a boy at the age of 12, confounding the teachers in the temple. He's no longer veiled by poverty and humanity. He is no longer being toyed with by the lawyers and the religious elites and, and the corrupt politicians of his day and John turns to see a voice and i want you to see this in revelation chapter 1 verse 12 then i turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning i saw go down one line one like a do you see the title being used there one like a son of man you saw that in Daniel. You see that in the Gospels. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. He sees Jesus. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John turns and he sees something. He hears something and he turns to see where the noise is coming from, and he sees something like the Son of Man. It's the same image that Daniel saw of the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father. And now it is God the Son. It's a messianic figure. And what he does then is then John gives eight images that are drawn from the Old Testament to present to you Jesus, how he rightly is now. The glorified King. These accumulated images aren't simply to present to you what he looks like right now, like with a literal sword out of his mouth and with glowing feet of judgment, but they're descriptions of his power and his glory. So if anything, this morning, all I'm trying to do is take is, yeah, really try to sort of deconstruct that manger scene we keep bringing out every year so that we don't keep making Jesus a little baby. But we rightfully view him as who he is, the king of glory. The long robe and golden sash around his chest, verse 13, were worn by high priests and dignitaries. He has a high priestly work, except he doesn't offer sacrifices outside of himself. He offers himself. His white hair, the use of Old Testament descriptions of white hair stresses the unity and equality of the son with the father. Of the transfiguration in Mark 9, verse 3, it says, His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Three disciples got to go to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, and they saw a glimpse of this in Jesus even before he died. Blazing eyes. That image corresponds to Daniel 10, verse 6. His eyes like flaming torches. Divine and pure insight. He sees you for who you really are, he sees you and your motives. He sees you and your thoughts. He sees you and your heart. Penetrating knowledge of our human situation. Bronze feet. Again, this corresponds to Daniel 10.6. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. That image is that of strength and the purity of judgment. Verse 15. His voice was like the roar of many waters. It will not be a whisper. It will not be the silence of a lamb, but he will return as the lion of the tribe of Judah with a roar. Stars in his right hand. That that signifies ownership and authority. The number of stars simply corresponds to the number of churches. Look at verse 20, chapter 1. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Christ has this close and intimate relationship with his church, with his people. Maybe the most disturbing, other than the flaming eyes, is the sword out of his mouth. Verse 16. It's another picture of power and judgment. In Isaiah 11:4, Isaiah says this, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. It is his word. He is called the word of life. Then a radiant face. In verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And the image again is that of glory. I simply want you to see John, a believing apostle, disciple's response. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Same response Daniel had when he saw the vision of the Ancient of Days. I mean, just picture that. John, prostate. Prostrate on the ground. And Jesus has to do something. He lays his right hand on him saying what? Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. How do we know this is Jesus? Keep reading verse 18. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. This reaction and Jesus' response are the comfort I want you to receive this morning. John saw a true picture of the Lord's glory and fell down as a dead man, even though he had walked with this man for three years on the earth. He lays his right hand on him and says, fear not. Here are the four titles. He is the sovereign one, the first and the last. Isaiah uses that title. He uses it here. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the ending. He who is to come, the almighty. Second, he is the eternal one. The only one that can offer eternal life. Matter of fact, he'll say this in John fourteen six that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one goes unto him except through the Father. He is the living one, which we need to know why. Because the curse all the way back in Genesis 3 had to do with death. Now we have a living one who is alive, he says this, forevermore, and finally, he is the conquering one. He holds the keys of death and Hades. The serpent does not. Jesus does. The book of Revelation brings us back to the glory and preeminence of Christ the King, not as a baby, but as the risen, glorified, and coming again a second time, Son of God. I'm going to invite our music team forward. I'm going to read three more scriptures while they get ready to lead us in a final hymn of response. Revelation 17:14 says this, They will make war on the Lamb. Okay, the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, John sees this on his robe. Of course, now you have Messiah the king riding a horse. And it says, On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings, and Lord of lords. John MacArthur said of the Book of Revelation, "It is a front-page story of the future of the world, written by someone who has seen it all." Second Corinthians eight nine says this: "For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and he was in eternity past, rich, all glory, equal to God." the Son of God, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you by His poverty might become rich. That's why He came. To destroy the works of the devil and to save sinners from their sin. Can I ask you a simple question before we sing? Have you believed the claims that Jesus made about Himself? Or have you received Him? To believe is to receive. Or have you accepted Him? Or have you trusted Him? These are all the same terms. Are you trusting in Him alone to save you from sin and eternal death? The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, supreme in authority, King, Master, if you confess that with your mouth that He is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Let's pray.